You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. That's kind of a fun piece is that the students can get to see um, the fruits of their labor. I mean, we have students that are working in our agriculture department who are out taking care of the cattle and they're milking the cows. And from there, the students are delivering the milk to our fruitcake and jelly kitchen where we're making ice cream that is being sold with the fresh dairy product from the agriculture department. And then we're also making fruit spreads and apple butter. And we have a grist mill that is on our campus. So we actually grind corn um, using old-fashioned millstones. And we make cornmeal and um, grits to be used in the dining room at the Keter Center. That was Kylie Hutchison describing a unique educational experience offered at the College of the Ozarks in Missouri. The program that he helps run integrates hands-on learning as a way to teach different facets of the food industry and was recently profiled on HRN's series, Eat Your Heartland Out. Relatively few college students are so directly involved in culinary pursuits, but food is an important part of any college experience. This week on Meet and 3, we explore the unique landscape of college food and what it's like for many to be away from the comfort of home-cooked meals for the first time. We hear about the creative challenges of dorm room cooking, learn the lengths one will go to to enjoy a home-cooked meal, and more. And briefly, I wanted to let you know that this might be my last episode hosting Meet and 3 for a couple of months because I'm about to go on maternity leave. Again, you are in great hands with my co-host, Matt Patterson, in the meantime, and I look forward to being back on these airwaves with you in early 2023. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meet and 3 on HRN. Meet and 3. Meet and 3. Meet and 3. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meet and 3. Whether the dining hall is closed, you need a quick bite on your way out the door, or you're looking to save some money, the dorm room meal is here to serve. Coming up, Sarah Mathis talks to Candace Davison, the founder of food blog Collegiate Cook and author of The Easy College Cookbook, about getting creative in your residence hall kitchen. When cooking in your dorm, there are many questions to consider. What appliances are allowed in your room? Does your dorm have a communal kitchen? Is someone always using it? What do you have space to store anyway? Sometimes difficult cuts must be made. One plate, one bowl, one set of cutlery. And this forced minimalism encourages a certain kind of culinary creativity. Why keep a rolling pin when your reusable water bottle will do? Personally, I never felt like I reached the height of culinary excellence in college. My most frequent preparation was pour-over ramen, made in my only bowl with the aid of an electric kettle. 
It always felt paltry and unsatisfying. If only I'd known then what Candace Davison taught me during this interview. Even like standard recipes that you'd find online, like sheet pan recipes are such a great meal. And if you half or quarter the recipes, they can usually work in your toaster oven so you can make them right in your dorm room. In her Easy College Cookbook, Candace recommends investing in a casserole dish for toaster oven bakes like this, as well as a can opener and a couple of knives, but not too much more in terms of special equipment. And sometimes just getting to know the appliances you have on hand can really elevate your cooking experience. There should be like a little yeah, power level button on most microwaves. And if you click that, you can choose a percentage. And often if you dial your microwave's power down to 70 or 80%, you can get a more even cook out of whatever you're cooking. If you reduce the, the power setting down to 70% and then like stir it every 30 seconds, you can get these amazingly fluffy eggs that you would never expect out of a microwave. But if you're in a real pinch or just feeling bold, Candace discovered that you don't really even need traditional appliances. The surprise hit of the dorm was actually making like grilled cheese and paninis and stuff like that using like a clothing iron. And so we would make sandwiches and wrap them in tinfoil and then stick an iron on top on the ironing board, just like Johnny Depp in that Benny and June movie. And um, it became this weird hit to like make all different types of melts and stuff. Sensational hacks aside, taking the time to cook in college can be about more than shortcuts or necessities. I feel like cooking in college and even just learning these hacks and stuff, it activated a sense of creativity and productivity. And it was a way to like move away from my screen after staring at a computer all day and like shift my focus. Cooking can be an act of self-care. You can nourish your mind and your body, and it's okay to have fun with it to rise to the challenge and explore the bounds of what can be accomplished in a mug. One late night crowd pleaser is the deep dish cookie, which is basically a chocolate chip cookie in a mug. And it's so simple because it's just a few tablespoons of, you know, flour, sugar. You actually use a scoop of Greek yogurt instead of an egg. So you don't have to even have to have eggs in your fridge and some vanilla and salt and chocolate chips. And you kind of mix it all up in a mug, throw it in there for a minute, and it tastes like a deep dish skillet cookie that you would get at like Chili's or one of those places that they throw a scoop of ice cream on top. And it's amazingly gooey, and it just takes a few minutes. And if, like me, you're short on time and energy, and your Brooklyn kitchen is not much bigger than your dorm room setup, these techniques are transferable to your life after college. Sometimes it's nice to remember that you don't need a lot of equipment or fancy ingredients to create something delicious. While we just learned about the endless potential of microwave and toaster oven dorm room hacks, there remains a certain nostalgia for a home-cooked meal that just can't be so easily replaced. For writer and editor Joelle Zarconi, growing up in an Italian family meant that her mom's signature homemade Sunday sauce was the staple food she just couldn't go without. Last October, Joelle appeared on My Family Recipe to discuss her essay, Grief with a Side of Baked Ziti. With Italian families, or at least my family, Sunday was always the day that you made sauce and that you had pasta or something with sauce. So it was like a tradition that I was just used to, that like every Sunday was sauce day, no matter what. So it was kind of, you know, integrated into my life and my routine very early on. And so by the time that I got to college, I, 
I think my mom was worried that I would forget what it tasted like or that I would be just so homesick without having that home cooked food because she, you know, made us meals every single day from scratch. Joelle went to college one state away. That never stopped her mom from making the five hour drive, frozen containers of sauce packed into a cooler in the back seat to deliver her famous bolognese sauce. So when she would start to bring me the sauce, she would usually bring, you know, all of these containers and then we would put them straight into the freezer usually and because the the sauce recipe makes such a large batch. And so I would usually save it and then, you know, I would defrost a container a week or something and then I would have it with pasta, you know, every night for dinner or I would use it with like chicken parmesan or, you know, the best a college student can do, I guess, with chicken parmesan and that sort of thing. And it it's kind of funny because it it became like a a thing that like I was known for, that my mom was known for amongst my friends. Like they would always be excited and like try to come over to make sure that they got sauce when they <laughs> when they knew that she had like recently dropped off. Joelle's frozen stash of sauce tied her to her family and her home while living away for the first time. When she moved cross-country, her mom swapped her red wine-colored sedan for an airplane seat, arriving at Joelle's door armed with her pot and wooden spoon. In July 2020, Joelle's mom passed away from cancer. Months later, she defrosted the last container of sauce and felt the fresh grief of losing her mother all over again. This home-cooked meal had served as a connection between Joelle and her mom as she left for college and began her life away from home. She was just so sure that the sauce and her cooking was just critical to, you know, my life and 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 happiness and it was an extension, I guess, of her of her love and so she it seemed felt that if she couldn't be there, like at least the sauce was there. So at least I was still getting, you know, a good meal or uh, even though I was an adult, right? So I could certainly cook for myself and figure out ways. But for her, you know, it wasn't enough. Like she needed to know that I was getting a good home-cooked meal that she had, you know, poured her heart into. Joelle's story of her mom's expression of love through her special sauce gives college food a new meaning. It's a tie to childhood memories and the flavors that connect us to home. By sharing her mom's sauce recipe, Joelle recalls that special connection and keeps her mother's legacy burning bright. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a quick break. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new series on Heritage Radio Network called The Culinary Call Sheet, where we give a peek into the back kitchen of culinary media. I'm your host, April Jones. And I'm your co-host, Darren Bresnitz. Part of why we started this show was to offer an unofficial mentorship for anyone who is interested in learning about all aspects of food and video, whether that's TV, social media, online, or just something you want to do for fun, 
Absolutely. What was once niche or a little silly, as I'm sure you remember, Darren, when we started out. Yes, ma'am. Has now become such a massive playing field for so many creatives using food as the medium. It's something that has driven us professionally and personally for so many years. What excites me the most about this show is that we're going to sit down with some of the industry leaders to hear how they made it and what drew them into this industry. With 20 years in the culinary production game ourselves, we're hoping we can give, through these conversations, an insider's view into personal stories from the field, as well as an in-depth behind-the-scenes look into some of the most popular food programming in today's evolving culinary media landscape. We'll be covering everything from how to style your food, to how to license IP, to developing your own ideas, and some tips from the masters of how to host your own show. Yeah, it's a little bit of conversation, how to, and how do you do the things that you do in culinary media, which I'm so excited about. I love so many of the guests that are coming on this season. We have talent from Food Network, from Vice Media, Eater, Refinery29. We've met some of the best people in the world, both in front of and behind the camera. And we're bringing them all together to share their stories, their delicious adventure, and their unique journey into this crazy world. So to be the first to hear our episodes when they launch this fall, go to wherever podcasts are streaming and hit subscribe and make sure to give us a follow at the Culinary Call Sheet on Instagram. Welcome back to Meet and Three. While college food can be funny, nostalgic, or comforting, it can also be a source of stress for many students. Vaidehi Kudyadi examines how food, or the lack of access to some kinds of food, can be an isolating experience for college students. When I first moved to the U.S. from India for college four years ago, I often remarked that I missed food from home the most. I would walk to my college's dining halls, scouring the food options for anything that even minutely resembled the dishes I had grown up eating. And when I couldn't find this, I'd often settle for a bowl of rice and a plate of mixed vegetables that had seasoned heavily. What made me feel better was that I wasn't the only student at my small Midwestern college that spent most of their meals experimenting with unfamiliar foods, hoping to transform them into dishes we felt comfortable eating. I realized that many international students, such as myself, and domestic students from diverse backgrounds, mostly ate the default cuisine of Western food throughout college. And this was a common experience for students like me across the country. In college, I would have deeply appreciated being able to access taste from home. In other words, I craved culturally relevant food. I spoke to Dr. Amy Bentley, a professor of food studies at New York University, about why it is so important for students like me to have diverse food options on campus. When we're deprived of those foods, it's almost like we've lost a piece of who we are. We um, feel the absence tremendously, and um, it can be disconcerting uh, culturally, psychologically, but also uh, it can affect our bodies and our health. Culturally relevant food has a logic for people. And it's different for different people, of course, coming from different cultures. But it's food they are familiar with, food that's intrinsic to their culture, food that has important social, cultural, um, familial meanings. Um, 
basically foods that speak to them in a way that's not just about nutrition and sustenance, but about family, community, uh, comfort, culture. College students are often thousands of miles away from home in a completely unfamiliar place. The disconnect from one's social and cultural environment is only exacerbated by the lack of access to something as central to one's identity as food. You might be eating in a dining hall in a, in a um, university with foods that don't match up to the ones you're familiar with. The spicing agents don't match up. You might have religious prescriptions um, against eating certain foods, and those foods are available in the dining hall, and maybe there's not sufficient alternatives to um, those foods that are taboo for you. And so all of that, just the, the leaving home, the disruption of the familiar environment, already places stress on a young person. The mental and physical stress that students face when they do not have access to familiar foods can also pervade their daily lives. A California State University study conducted by Dr. Heng Shunye showed that when students have access to culturally relevant food, their sense of belonging in an academic setting and consequent academic outcomes are generally positive. In other words, access to diverse food has a significant impact on a student's academic success. So what can schools and colleges do to make sure that their students are getting access to the foods they need? I think universities should try as much as possible to provide at least you know, a vegetarian option, vegan option, uh, something that would be kosher or halal or, you know, something that would meet basic religious and cultural dietary restrictions. It could also have, a, um, say, a table of condiments. So salsas and kimchi and other cultures' signature spicing relishes that could help spice up that bland plate of rice and beans or, um, you know, starch and vegetables. And so people could dress it up as they wished according to their cultural tastes. And students can be a part of these efforts as well. Some college campuses have food co-ops where students live in a communal setting and they take turns cooking. And this would also be an excellent option for students to present their own cultural foods, to share them with others, but also learn about and try other people's signature dishes. College is an extremely important and demanding experience for young people who decide to go. And these ways of expanding food options on college campuses are necessary for the emotional, physical, and academic well-being of all students. As we just heard from Vaidehi, the lack of access to culturally relevant foods can be stressful and isolating for many students. It leads us to wonder about the larger problem of food insecurity as a whole on college campuses. Food insecurity is a reality that many face during their time in college. On episode 53 of Let's Talk About Food, host Louisa Kasdan speaks to Matthew Martin about his experience with homelessness throughout college and how he has used his past to fuel his mission of tackling food insecurity around the world. I went off to college and studied what I thought was going to be a career and maybe business or communications. Halfway through my college career, I was homeless. 
halfway through my high school career, I almost died of a ruptured appendix. So I had a couple pretty tumultuous times uh, there in just a few years. So I uh, was going to a very expensive college and my parents couldn't afford to help me uh, being that they were divorced. My mom's a waitress, my dad's a truck driver. So they were barely making it. And I got halfway through and I just ran out of money. I was trying to work my way through college working full-time, going to school full-time, and your body just reaches a limit even when you're 20. <laughs> so I just took a semester off, decided it was better to have no expenses. So I just lived out of the trunk of my car and grabbed a couple uh, pizza delivery jobs because I got free food. And I just relied on my friends that I had made in my first couple years of college to support me with housing, kind of impromptu each night. Unfortunately, Matthew is not alone in this experience. According to a survey conducted by the Hope Center for College, Community, and Justice, around 14% of students attending college experience some type of homelessness and related food insecurity. The difficulty that this adds to one's college experience seems insurmountable. For Matthew, he worked 100 hours a week to earn enough money to make his way back into college. After doing so, he completely changed the direction of his life. Looking back on his time being homeless, he realized so much of his support system had been through the Christians on campus, and from there, he decided to become a Lutheran youth minister. He eventually moved cross-country to New England, where he was put straight to work on an assembly line, packaging food for those in need. We arrived with just one assembly line, but the next day after we arrived, the Haiti earthquake happened. And 80 or 90% of their buildings fell down. There was a couple hundred orphans that our church was connected to, this church we've been serving for 24 hours. And they said, hey, let's take that assembly line. Let's pack some meals. Let's get them to Haiti. So we started doing that and did that for 18 months because anytime there's a crisis like Ukraine, it languishes for years usually and decades even. Uh, Haiti's still recovering and then they get hit with Hurricane Matthew. So it's like there's always a need globally, but all the hunger work I had done up to that point was world hunger. There wasn't really a thought to local hunger, but we served that church for 18 months, discovered that there was more hungry people on the planet than there had ever been. It had reached a billion for the first time, and there was 7 billion people on the planet at that point uh, 11 years ago. So it was one out of seven. It was super easy math. But in Maine, one out of three kids were hungry. And in America, one out of four kids were hungry. So we were like, maybe the reason we got called out here in this weird way, is to do this hunger thing. What started as a humble operation in the spare room of a church has now grown into a massive operation called End Hunger New England. Matthew, as one of the leaders of this organization, has mobilized 1,200 volunteer groups to package and ship meals across the world. The operation, as he describes it, is limitless because of the help of these volunteers. We've now fed 39 million people. A ton of them during the pandemic. 2020 was our biggest year. 2022 might be our biggest year yet. Let me make sure I heard this right. 39 million people. Yep. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Learn more about the guests and topics from this week's episode in our show notes. Special thanks this week to Rana Rudy, Vaidehi Kudyari, Sarah Mathis, and Aviva Futornik. Meet and 3 is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Matt Patterson, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer for this episode is Matt Patterson. 
Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out.